All right, please take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 John chapter 1. Uh, Last time we were together in our series, we asked the question, what is joy? And we answered that question, uh, that joy is an abiding confidence and contentment that rests above material and emotional circumstances that is given to us by God. It's not something that conjures up inside of us in an emotional way. It is not something that we, uh, that we produce. It is something that God produces in us that transcends circumstances uh, that le- brings us into a place of abiding confidence and contentment. And now as we walk through John 13 through 17, we found very clearly that joy is conditioned upon fellowship. Even in our, our memory verse for this, I will show me the path of life in thy presence is fullness of joy, right? It is in the presence of God that we find that joy. That presence is that concept of abiding or that concept of fellowship. We describe it as joy being the evidence of fellowship with God called in John 17 verse 3, eternal life. Also referenced here in 1 John as such. Noting specifically that while eternal life ends with resurrection and heaven, ours, the cross, the grave, the skies, right? As we just sang, Christ the Lord is risen today. Christ intends eternal life to be a living and a present state of being. Something that we are thriving in. Something that we are abiding in. Something that we are experiencing moment by moment. That our hands can handle. That our eyes can see of the word of life. That being this eternal life. That comes through fellowship with the Father. To actively live out this eternal life through the knowledge of the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom he hath sent. And to this end, the question of how do we walk in fellowship is of utmost importance. How do we walk in fellowship? Fortunately, since the objective of John's first epistle is that we would have fullness of joy, one of the primary objectives is to teach us thus how to have fellowship with Christ. Now, interestingly enough, John does not really begin with how to have fellowship with Christ in his introduction. Instead, he focuses his initial attention upon what fellowship is. And then he'll talk about how to maintain or how to be brought into restoration of fellowship so that even before we get to the fullness of what fellowship looks like, We will have all of the methods at our disposal to orient ourselves rightly into fellowship. And for the sake of context today, we're going to begin back in 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, and we'll read to verse 5 where we will pick up our context. So the Bible says this in 1 John 1, 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write unto you, that your joy may be full. Now verse 5. This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So we step into verse five and we find that John uses language that tells us that he is coming to some measure of a concluding thought, right? This then is the message. They've tasted, they've handled the things of the word of life. They declare, they desire to declare this unto us. What is this thing that they want to declare about the word of life, uh, which is rooted in eternal life? This is the message. 
John has told us his purpose. He has introduced his theme, and now he's going to tell us why it all matters. Now, this word message, this then is the message, is an interesting one. It's used 53 times in our New Testament. But what's really interesting is that this is the only time in our King James translation where it is not translated promise. It's translated message. All of the other 52 times this word is used, it's translated promise. And we understand why it is that the translators might have used a different word here. Uh, The idea God is light and in him is no darkness at all, we could take that as a promise, but it does sound like something beyond just a promise. It sounds like, well, like a a pronouncement, right? Like an announcement, like something uh, that we are proclaiming. And and that's a a perfectly fine, it's a perfectly good translation. In fact, as you go back to classical Greek literature, the word is regularly used in this sort of announcement or message sort of a way. But it is interesting that we see that deviation here. This is that message, though. This is that announcement that John is giving. God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. This is essential. The path to joy is through fellowship. What does fellowship look like? Fellowship looks like light. Walking in light. We sang about it a lot this morning. Immortal, invisible, God only wise. And light inaccessible. Hid from our eyes. Not hid from our eyes anymore. For we have in Christ access to that light. Now as we mentioned in our book sermon, the connections between Jesus and light are not first forged in 1 John. In truth, it connects us all the way back to Genesis, right? Let there be light and there was light. We've, we talked about that when we were uh, at the beginning of Genesis. The fact that when God said, let there be light and there was light, that's not the day that he hung the, lamp, the, the lights in the sky, the sun, the stars, and by, by proxy of reflection, the moon. And yet, on that day, God brought in light. And we connected that to John chapter 1, saying that that was the day that God ushered in the rules of the moral universe. And the hub of everything as it relates to the connection between God and light is truly John chapter 1. Not just chapter 1, but let's just say the book of John. Now, I've taken you a lot into John, but I'm going to take you more and get used to it because we're going to find ourselves in John several times within the course of this this book. So in John chapter 1, we're here in 1 John 1, 5. In John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, the Bible says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. Here it is. And the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. So notice the connection here between light and life. John says that he wants to introduce to the reader that thing which is of the word of life that is eternal life. And then the message by which he is showing us eternal life is this. God is light. Now we've already covered the nature of life, right? John tells us Jesus is life. He also gives life to all those who come unto him, we term that eternal life. We've explored that idea. We even mentioned it already. Not just the resurrection, not just heaven, not just the kingdom, something here and now. And this life, John chapter 1 verse 4 tells us, is the light of men. The thing which shines into the darkness of man's hearts and illuminates him to the world as it exists, but which darkness does not comprehend. That word comprehend there, The meaning of that word is literally to seize or to possess. 
So the idea is not that the darkness doesn't understand the light. The idea is that the darkness does not receive the light. It will not possess the light. That when the light shines into the darkness, like cockroaches, when you flick the light on, the darkness scatters. They go into the dark corners and recesses looking for that darkness. It's like in the morning, right? On a, on a, on a bright and sunny summer morning when it's light at 5 o'clock in the morning, 4.30 in the morning, and that light starts to shine through and someone throws open those curtains and it burns your eyes, right? No, close the curtains. Why? Because it hurts. It hurts to be introduced quickly to the light. That's sort of the idea here. The darkness comprehended, apprehended, uh, received, possessed it not. The darkness rejected it. And that brings us back to 1 John 1 verse 5. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Now, one of the things we understand from the natural world around us about light and darkness is that darkness is not a thing unto itself. And I believe this is a very important metaphor. This is, I believe, one of the reasons why Jesus used this metaphor so regularly as it related to himself. Darkness is not something in and of itself. Darkness is not defined by what it is. Darkness is defined by what it is not. Darkness is defined as the absence of light. You do not have darkness unless there is an absence of light. Darkness cannot encroach on light. We've never been in a room like this and all of a sudden you just see a shadow moving on its own volition without anything else in the room moving and encroaching upon the light. That does not happen. The only time a shadow happens is when something is blocking light. The only time darkness is, in, is, is around is when there is no light. Darkness is the absence of light. So darkness only exists where light does not shine. And in this, we learn something about God. We learn something about the world that God created. First, we learn God is not righteous in action, but righteous in substance. God is light. It isn't that God contains light. It isn't that God shines light. It's that God is light. God is the substance of righteousness. What this means is that when Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. He wasn't kidding. Truth does not describe Jesus. Truth, Jesus defines truth. Jesus is the standard, the ruler of truth. If I want to understand what truth is, I look at Jesus. Jesus is truth. Jesus didn't just have truthful ideas, Jesus manifested truth in itself because Jesus is light. What is darkness? What is unrighteousness? What is false? What is sin? It is that which is not Jesus. It is that which is not God. He is the definition. The old idiom goes, you know, you say, if you looked up annoying in the dictionary, so-and-so's picture would be there. If you looked up smart in the dictionary, so-and-so's picture would be there. Well, quite literally, it would be sufficient for us if we looked up holiness, righteousness, sinlessness in the dictionary, God's picture could be there. Because that is the literal definition of holiness. That is the literal definition of righteousness. It is God himself. The only true and functional definition of sin, of wickedness, of these things, in, of lies, is that they are the opposite of God, right? Not God. So that we understand that God is the definition of righteousness, the substance of holiness. It is not something that God does. It is what he is. I don't hold God to the definition of holiness and say, is God holy? I better check on that. No, he is. If he does it, it's holiness. 
If he hates it, it's not holy. If God loves it, it's righteous by definition because he loves it. If, it. if God does it, then it's holy by definition because he did it. Jesus would say in John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. He would say in John chapter 12, verse 46, I am come a light into the world that whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. You believe on him, you step into the light. You follow him, you are walking in the light. You can't but be walking in the light if you're walking in him. Which means if we are, fellow, in, in, if we are in the light, we are in fellowship. If we are out of the light, we are out of fellowship. And there's no two ways about this. This gives us a in and an out clarity as it relates to the nature of fellowship. Light. Jesus said in John 1.4 uh, uh, that uh, the life was the light of men and Jesus is that light. Jesus is that life. Life is light. And what life did Jesus bring to distribute to all who would believe? John 10, verse 28. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. The life that Jesus came to bring, that is the light of the world, was this eternal life. And remember, this eternal life is not just getting to go to heaven. What is this eternal life? John 17, 3. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Eternal life is a way of living, not just an end of life, end of this, this condition. Eternal life is rooted in God himself, defined as light, so that to walk in the light is to walk in eternal life. Second point, lessons from darkness. First, God is not righteous in action, but in substance. Second, righteousness in this world is defined by God's character alone. I've already kind of brushed up on this point. We do not have the right in and of ourselves to classify what is right and what is wrong. Right and wrong are light and darkness. And light is defined by God because God is light. So that the essence of righteousness, the essence of holiness, is not a set of actions. It is not a set of rules. It is a person. It is the person of Jesus Christ. Which means to walk in the light is not intrinsically to walk in a set of actions or a set of rules. It is to walk in fellowship with a person. And that is Jesus Christ. Now, if I'm walking in fellowship, there will be natural results of that, which I can expect. And we're going to talk about that all throughout the book of 1 John. That there are certain things that I can look to to determine whether or not I am in fellowship. That, that they are checkpoints. They are fruit. Jesus said, you will know them by their fruit. Jesus said that a, a corrupt tree does not bring forth good fruit and, a, 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 and a, a good tree does not bring forth corrupt or evil fruit. So we can see by fruit where we are, but it is not that in and of itself. It is not those actions or, or dispositions. It is the fellowship that determines whether or not I am where I ought to be. Okay, so let's take this metaphor a bit further. On this earth, we have a period of light and we have a period of darkness. That period of light we call day. And that period of darkness we call night. And as a rule, humans operate during the day. Because this is when we have light.
to be able to see. Now, technology has bridged those gaps, and, and we are very thankful for that, allowing us to have a, a, a multitude of interactions at night. But again, even as a rule, even with all of the technology that we have today, as a general rule, humans still most regularly operate during the day. And we do so specifically because of the light, because we need light to be able to operate at full capacity. Notice what Jesus said in John 11. When Jesus asked, when the disciples asked Jesus about the threat of him being killed, he said this in verses 9 and 10. Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If any man walk in the day, he stumbleth not, because he seeth the light of this world. But if a man walk in the night, he stumbleth, because there is no light in him. And then again, Jesus would say in John 12, 35 and 36, Yet a little while is the light with you. Walk while ye have the light. Lest darkness come upon you, for he that walketh in darkness knoweth not whither he goeth. While ye have light, believe in the light, that ye may be the children of light. So we operate in the day, because the day is when we can see where we're going. And we aren't going to stumble. And we're able to orient ourselves properly to the world that is around us. Now, I have been preaching in this church now for 11 years. That's a pretty long time. The church has had the general same layout, with a few notable exceptions at times, for the past 11 years. If it were dark outside, which it's not right now, but if if it were the winter and so it were already dark outside and we flipped off all of these lights, I could generally make my way in the darkness pretty well. And I could say, well, I've seen some things and I know some things about this place so I can make my way in the darkness. However, my children do have a habit of leaving a toy here or there around the church. And it just so happens that if there's something that I'm not used to because someone laid something where they weren't supposed to or someone moved a chair so that they could talk with someone else, I am going to stumble. I'm going to trip. I'm going to fall. I'm going to stub my toe. I am going to have a, I'm going to have generalized problems because not only do I not have every uh, amount of awareness as to how things have moved, but things can move on me at any time. We certainly can function in the night. We can even function in darkness during the day. But if we do so, we are yielding something. It would be, how foolish would it be for me to stumble around in this building, for us all to stumble around in this building in the darkness, when we can simply turn on the lights? It's foolishness. Because you cannot see where you're going, and as confident as you might be that you can get yourself around, it will be slower, it will be more dangerous, and if you, are disor- and if you, you do disorient yourself, you're not going to be able to reorient yourself. Once you are in the darkness, you have no means by which to properly orient yourself any longer. So we yield, if we were to walk in darkness... The fundamental advantage that life affords, which is that as that light uh, reaches me and, and my eyes and my eyes translate that into something that I can recognize, I am able to properly orient myself to the world that is around me as it exists. Now, whether the light is shining or not, the environment is there. I can flip off the lights and say, I don't see it, so it doesn't exist. But that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. If I say, I want to walk from here to the back of the church, and we flip off all the lights, and we we cover all the windows, and it's dark, and I say, well, I don't see any chairs, so the chairs are not there. I can say that all I want, but when I start to walk, I'm going to hit chairs. 
and I'm going to trip over those chairs and I'm going to be falling all over the place because the chairs are there whether I choose or to see them or not, whether I choose to acknowledge them or not. But when the light shines on them, then I can see them and I can properly orient myself and I can go around the chairs. So God is light and in him is no darkness. Christian, if you want to understand the world properly, there's only one way to do it. If you want to orient yourself to life properly, there's only one way to do it. That is to walk in the light. Now, there's a lot of people that are groping in the darkness and they make their way. And they're stumbling and they're tripping and they're falling and they're bruising and they're, 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 they're stubbing their toes and they're a little bit worse for the wear, but they make it from point A to point B. But how much easier if we would just flip on the light? If we would just walk during the day? If I had the choice of walking in the night or the day, I'm going to walk in the day. And so we walk in the light. While ye have the light, believe in the light, Jesus said, that ye may be children of light. And this brings us to 1 John chapter 1, verse 6. We'll, we'll pick up in verse 5 again for context. Verse 5 says, This then is the message which we have heard of him, and declare unto you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Verse 6, If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. So then do you see what John is saying to us when he tells us God is light and in him is no darkness at all? John is telling us that only as I walk in God's way, as I walk the path that God has illuminated, only as I walk in his light, the light of his character, the light of who he is, the light of what he has said, the light of his promises, the light of his commands, can I orient myself properly to the world as it exists. Now, this is a controversial statement. It's not a biblically controversial statement, but it is an experientially controversial statement because you are bombarded all day with people telling you that there's other ways to live. With the world, the flesh, and the devil. With the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. With your own deceitful heart, right? Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Trying to tell you that things are different than what God has said. And then you come to a crossroads where you either have to believe what the world has said, what your heart has said, what uh, the, the, the truth claims that are around you, or you believe what God has said. And there's any number of alluring and convincing reasons why you might be convinced that some other way might be better for you. But then we come back to this enduring truth that light exists in only one context. God is light. And absent of God, what will you have? There is no other light. Which means you have darkness. And so if I say I have fellowship, but I'm walking in darkness, I'm lying. I'm not doing the truth. I'm a liar. Living out, we've talked about this already, living out the truth is what we call integrity. Integrity is when I am who I say I am. To walk outside of truth, we call hypocrisy. When I say I'm one thing, but I am another. And if I'm walking in darkness while saying I have fellowship with God, I'm not telling the truth. Because God is light. Now we'll see 
that some of this truth may be self-deception, self-delusion. It's not necessarily purposeful lying, but that's why John is teaching it. So that if we're self-deceived, we'll stop being self-deceived. Since God is light, if I am walking in fellowship, then I am by definition walking in light. Since God is light, if I am walking in light, then I am by definition walking in fellowship. One more verse and then we'll put some things together. 1 John 1 verse 7. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ his son cleanseth us from all sin. So here's the contrast, right? If we do walk in the light as God is in the light, John says two things happen. First, we have fellowship one with another. Second, the blood of Jesus Christ his son cleanseth us from all sin. Let's consider each in turn. This is the second time that John has spoken of fellowship here in verse 7 among the brethren in this epistle. The first consideration was in verse 3 where John wrote this, that which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And recall we connected this to John's purpose for the book saying that his desire was that those who were reading this book, this epistle, would join them in fellowship. In the fellowship of those who had heard and who had seen with their eyes and who had looked upon and their hands had handled of the word of life as that eternal life which was from the Father. So it was a desire and a call, in a sense, to join John among the community of believers, perhaps as we'll talk about next week, specifically teachers or ministers who were walking in this fullness of joy by walking in fellowship with God. But there is perhaps something else going on here in verse 7 as well, because a good amount of time in this epistle will be devoted not just to the idea of, of, of our relationship with God, but also the idea of our relationship with one another calling the readers unto love of the brethren. So that the desire is not just that the brethren would join John in understanding fellowship and thus having fullness of joy, but also that they would love one another as an integral part of what this fellowship looks like. And so John says, if we're walking in the light, one of the first manifestations of this, one of the first manifestations of this fellowship will be that we are in fellowship one with another. That there is a mutual fellowship together, and we'll see as we continue through the book, that this will be manifest in a love for the brethren. And so that's the first result of walking in the light, that there will be a unity one, one with another. Now, the second result of walking in the light here, the blood of Jesus Christ, the Son, cleanseth us from all sin. Now, once again, we're tempted, based upon this phrase here, to say that being born again and so being cleansed and forgiven of our sins is what we're talking about. However, it's very unlikely that this is what we're talking about, isn't it? And we've already talked about a number of reasons why. Not the least of which being the very phrase here, meaning that we must walk in the light as he is in the light if we want to be saved from our sins and have a home in heaven. That makes no sense. For by grace are ye saved through faith, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We spent time in Hebrews talking about the nature of grace. And grace, as we studied it, can have no bearing for merit, for worth, or for effort. Because if, if, if we have 
if, if that thing which we are seeking by grace contains any merit worth of my own, any um, uh, effort of my own, any worth of my own, any of those things, well, then it's no longer grace. I've earned it. I have qualified myself for that thing. Grace must be apart from merit, apart from worth, apart from effort, or it's not grace. So that Paul says in Romans, if it's of work, then it's no more grace. Otherwise, work, uh, grace is not grace. If it's of, uh, of grace, then it's not of work. Otherwise, work is not work, right? Effort, merit, worth, and grace are diametrically opposed one to another. And so the very essence here, as we allow what is clear in the scriptures to interpret what is less clear, that's how we interpret the Bible, the idea that the blood of Jesus Christ is cleansing us from all sin, meaning that we are saved only as we're walking in the light, is fundamentally contradictory to what the Bible has said about grace. Because if I have to do something, then it's not grace. But there's other things, right? We've already talked about the fact that the purpose of the book of 1 John is not to teach us how to be born again. Nor is the scriptural precedent for, uh, for the idea that when it, once we are born of the Spirit of God, we can become unborn. So the idea that, okay, well, Paul, uh, John is talking to a born-again group, but he's saying that you have to do this to maintain your salvation. Well, as the old adage goes, if it were possible for us to lose our salvation, every single one of us would have lost our salvation. Simply put, if it were possible for you to lose your salvation, you'd have lost it already. If it were possible for me to lose my salvation, I'd have lost it already. Can that which is born become unborn? No, that which is born can die, but it cannot become unborn. Once, it, once, once you are born, you have, you have been born. No, no, no un, unborning. Doesn't work. Can't happen. The whole reason why we need salvation is because you can't earn it, you can't gain it, you can't even keep it. And since we are all as an unclean thing, all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, the only hope we have is in Jesus Christ alone. So then it seems very unlikely here, based upon the reality of grace in the scriptures, based upon the reality of how the Bible teaches about salvation, and based upon the essence of Paul or John, I keep saying Paul, John's stated purpose in the book, that this is not talking about salvation. It's not talking about gaining your salvation. It's not talking about maintaining your salvation. So is there any other possibility? Well, if there isn't any other possibility, then we have to go back to those, right? We have to go back to those. And we have to say, well, if there is no other option, this is how we interpret the Bible. We allow what is clear to interpret what is unclear, and then we start to eliminate things. We say, well, what is clear in the Bible is that we're saved by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. What is clear in the Bible is Jesus said that, the, that, that he holds his sheep in his hand and no man can pluck them out of his hand. No man can pluck them out of his father's hand. So we see these things in clarity. So then we come to a passage like this where it says that we must walk in the light and as we're walking in the light, the blood of Jesus Christ is cleansing us and we say, well, that sounds like a salvation thing, but because of what we believe is very clearly taught in the word of God, that is not going to be our first inclination. So instead, we're going to see if there's any other precedence in the scripture for some other explanation that would be consistent with the more clear and foundational things of the word of God. Then we go looking for that. If we find that, then we have what we could say to be a, a more sure solution. If we don't find it, well, then we have to rethink our foundations. 
If there's no other explanation for the blood of Jesus Christ, his son cleanseth us from all sin other than saved, keeping it or gaining it, well, then we have to rethink everything we know about what it means to be saved. We have to go back and we have to think through that because we know that the word of God does not contradict itself. Fortunately, in all of our studies, we've never had that happen. We've never come to a time where we come to one of these passages and we say, is there any other explanation? And we look in the Bible and we say, well, there's no other explanation. We need to rethink salvation. And we haven't found that yet because it's not there. So we don't need to go there because we know John's purpose for the book. Fellowship one with another. This is about fellowship. It's about joy. This is not about salvation. And we know where this comes from. It comes from Jesus' teaching, surprise, surprise, John 13 through 17, to his intimate followers about how they can, as those who have believed in the name of Jesus Christ, live in the eternal life that would soon be purchased for them on the cross, which was promised to them in full, and it would be realized in the kingdom, but theirs to live in today. And we're predisposed to think these things that John is not speaking of salvation. And as we said, where then do we find precedent for the idea that this concept of the blood of Jesus Christ's Son cleansing us from all sin does not necessarily have to speak directly of being saved, that, that moment of being born again? Well, we're in 1 John after a fairly substantial series in Hebrews. And I think it's the longest series I've ever preached. I think Genesis will probably beat it out. But um, to this point, it's the longest series I've ever preached. And way back in Hebrews chapter 10, which I preached in October of last year. So we're coming on nearly a year here since I preached it. We read these words. And I'm going to read a chunk of scripture. So hang on with me. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. Paul writes, For the law having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered, because that the worshipers, once purged, should have had no more conscience of sins. Right? The idea here, Paul is looking back upon the sacrificial system, and he is stating that if that offering that they had made year by year was able to make them perfect, was able to make them complete, then they wouldn't have had to do it year by year, right? It would have made them perfect, and then they'd be done because they'd be perfect. No need to go back. No need to do it all over again. No more conscience of sin. That, we've talked about conscience, right? Paul invokes that concept of conscience, meaning a, a, a culpability of, of sin and the, the, the recognition, the weight of it. Verse 3. But in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance, again, made of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldst not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sins thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come, in the volume of the book it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. Above, when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin thou wouldst not, neither hast pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. And then this is where he's going with this. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. He took away the sacrificial system that he may establish 
something different. That's exactly what we memorialize tonight. Jesus said this blood, this cup is the new Testament, the new covenant in my blood. I almost took you tonight to Jeremiah chapter 31. We'll probably do that next month where we see this promise of the new covenant, the thing that Jesus is invoking when we partake together in communion. And that thing that he's invoking, that new covenant in his blood, he takes away the first that he may establish the second. Verse 10, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the blood of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest standing daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. Notice the difference. Sin, perpetually, perpetual sacrifices, perpetual remembrance. Jesus, once for all sacrifice, sits down at the right hand of the Father. It is done and finished forever. Verse 13, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified, whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. For after that he said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds. This is Jeremiah 31. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. So long passage helps us understand that Christ has established this once for all remission of sins. That what Christ did on the cross fulfilled the shadow, which was the law through the sacrificial system and fulfills the promise of God in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34, that God would write his laws on the heart of men and he would remember their sin no more. Now that this promise of a new covenant fulfilled in the finished work of Jesus Christ, given unto all men who would come unto him by faith to receive them, is there. But then notice what Paul goes on to say in 19 through 25. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, And having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Here it is. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. So beginning in verse 9, Paul has established the nature of salvation by grace through faith, right? A once-for-all finished work. And then he says, having received this, let's do some things. He calls them unto perfection, to enter boldly into the holiest. What, what, What was the holy of holies a picture of? The presence of God. Thou wilt show me the path of life in thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. This is fellowship. And so what is a part of fellowship? Verse 22. That as we are in this place of fellowship, seeking unto fellowship, what do we do? We have access to the Holy of Holies now that we are in Christ. We have come through the veil that is his flesh, that salvation. And so we draw near with a true heart, with a full assurance, having a heart sprinkled from an evil conscience. This is a part of the process of fellowship. 
and our bodies washed with pure water. This is a part of the process of fellowship. Draw near. Do you see that picture? The sacrifice of Jesus Christ qualifies us by faith to enter into the presence of God. And as we enter, we do so with a body that is washed and a heart that is sprinkled. And the blood of Jesus Christ, is, has spring, his, his Son, cleanseth us from all sin. A picture of the tabernacle, the blood being sprinkled. Of course, it was first sprinkled on the altar, then the people. But then where did he take it? Through the veil and onto the mercy seat. A release from sin happens at the moment of salvation. But more than that, as it says here, our hearts being sprinkled from an evil conscience. No sin between us and our Savior living in clear and open fellowship with Christ as our bodies are washed, as our hearts are sprinkled. And as with eternal life, so too with the heart sprinkled from an evil conscience. Every provision for this is made the moment that I trust in the blood of Jesus Christ to cleanse me from sin and to save me unto eternal life. But the realization of this clean conscience, like the experience of living in eternal life, is something that I must tap into as a believer, something I must engage in, something I must strive unto. I must then draw nigh, right? He is telling these who have already been saved by grace through faith in Hebrews 10, let us draw near through this sprinkling of our conscience, through the washing of our bodies with pure water. Every provision is made, but the realization is something that I am called then to do to enter into that presence. The veil has been torn, rent. We can go into the, and access the presence of God, but that doesn't mean that we will perpetually live there unless we choose to. We must maintain that place. And how do I do that? Well, confession. We're going to talk about that next time. That's not for today. Next week will be confession, and we'll talk about how it is that we, we bring ourselves into that place of fellowship as it relates to re- restoration of fellowship. Before today, as we consider this call to walk in the light here in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, the promise is that in determining to walk in the light... We will be in fellowship, both one with another, with the brethren, and with God. And, as we live, and, and we will do so as we live in the cleansing power that Christ purchased for us on the cross and applied as we align ourselves with God's commands. The precedent for this, if nothing else, being what we find in Hebrews chapter 10, as Paul invokes the same picture to show how it is that we maintain fellowship stay in that place of nearness to God through a heart that is clean, through obedience, through confession, through repentance. And so what John is laying down then is a framework for joy. Follow the connection backward with me. Fullness of joy at the top here. That's what we're getting to. That's what we want. That's the thing that that John is writing for us to find. He says, These things write we unto you that your joy may be full. Fullness of joy comes from God as we walk in fellowship with God and with one another. So then if I don't have joy, I know that there's something wrong either with me and my brethren or with me and God. Fellowship with God and man comes from walking in the light. 
so that if I'm not walking in the light, then I'm not in fellowship and I certainly won't have fullness of joy. And if I'm not in fellowship, that means that there's darkness somewhere. Because if I'm in darkness, I won't have fellowship with my brother or I won't have fellowship with God. But if I'm walking in the light, as he is in the light, then I have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ has cleansed me from all sin. And next time we'll talk about how to restore that fellowship and we'll add a few things to this chart. But what does it all mean? Well, first, it means that if you aren't living in joy, again, this is not happiness, right? We've talked about that. We're not talking about the emotion of happiness. We're talking about that abiding contentment that comes given by God in spite of or in the midst of whatever circumstances you are in that is realized through fellowship. But if you're not experiencing joy, you know that there's a reason it's not just that you, you drew the short straw. You're that one Christian that can't have it. You're that one that you're doing everything right, but it has just eluded you. You're not that special. You're special to God, but you're not that special. It means that there's something wrong spiritually. Not a physical condition. Not an emotional condition. Not a mental condition. Now, can those things play into the spiritual? Yes, because we are one person, right? Your body, your spirit, they're connected. And in that, can your body have an effect on your spirit? Can your spirit have an effect on your body? Absolutely. But there is a spiritual thing happening here. And maybe it is that there's something in your body that needs to be corrected so that you can then see clearly to correct the spiritual. But there's still a spiritual need there. Because as we've already seen, joy exists and is not dependent upon circumstances. Second, if you aren't experiencing joy... There's a definitive reason why. It's not just that there's something wrong. There is a reason why. Rooted in some darkness, which is hindering your fellowship with God or with the brethren. And finally, if it is true that fullness of joy is possible, and it's true that we can pinpoint the direct elements of our spiritual life that would threaten our joy, then we can rest in full assurance on the authority of God's word. And this is a really, this is a really important point and, and, and a good one. The problem can be fixed. Isn't that a blessing? If I'm not in a place of fullness of joy, there's a problem, but that problem can absolutely be fixed. And it's not conditioned upon how smart you are, how wealthy you are, how capable you are, how insightful you are. It is a spiritual problem that has a spiritual solution and God says, come unto me, all ye that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And that's a wonderful, a wonderful truth that we need to cling to. And we'll talk more about that beginning next time. As I said last time in our message on joy, we all fully understand that this life is replete with evil, with difficult circumstances, with terrible things. And that you and I cannot fully understand the trials and difficulties that anyone else has gone through, the battles that we have been asked to fight. We understand that as well. But if joy is what God has for us, then let's not rest until we have it. And it's going to take humility. And it's going to ask us to dig into the darkest corners of our heart and root some things out because that darkness 
is hindering us. And it might ask for us a measure of what we would call while in darkness sacrifice, but most of you have probably experienced this, that thing that when you're standing in darkness that God is asking you to sacrifice, to come to the light. When you're in the light, you look back and say, why did I ever want that thing to begin with? This is so much better. So it will ask something of you, but the thing which it will ask of you is so inferior to the thing which you will gain that it's really not a loss at all. And 1 John charts the path to that very end, open to any who are willing to follow it. If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanseth us from all sin. That's, that's, that's the promise. That's the solution. That's the direction. Walk in the light. How? We'll have to keep working to get there. Have to keep reading. Have to keep studying. But know that it's possible. Know that this is what God wants for you. This is the state that God intends for you. May God help us to realize it in our lives. Let's close in prayer. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.